The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Can we just pray for us, uh, for God to bless the preaching of his word, because we need his help. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is true, and we thank you that your word is powerful. And we ask you to send your spirit now. Be with us as we un- try to understand um, this whole category, category of addiction from your word. Uh, for Jesus' sake, amen. So as many of you know, I did some uh, addiction recovery training recently down in Dallas, um, where everything is huge. And um, we, uh, so Jay and I went down there together, and uh, the history of the program that they have there is uh, uh, Michael Snetzer, uh, the Lord saved him uh, while he was in AA, um, Alcoholics Anonymous, while he was in an AA recovery program, the Lord saved him. And the Lord used him at a, as a part of the village church there in Dallas um, to basically uh, kickstart uh, an addiction recovery program uh, with the gospel for the people in that area. And so they've gone through several iterations. And what I went down was to get some training and just to understand what does the gospel have to say? How does the gospel shape how we understand the category of addiction? How do we understand um, how the gospel saves people who are in addiction? And, um, I mean, as you guys know, I mean, the whole thing with addiction in our state and in our city is massive. I mean, New Hampshire as a state had over 400 drug-related deaths. New Hampshire, Manchester itself had 96 um, by December 22nd this last year. There were 700 approximate number of overdoses, overdose calls uh, for paramedics, 2,000 approximate number of doses of uh, naloxone. I should have pronounced that before I got this. Uh, so it's the, a drug, 2,000 ad- administrations of a drug that prevents overdosing, a death and overdose. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever been downtown, but I was downtown recently, um, and somebody was asking me for, hey, can I get $7? Um, I thought that was an odd number, but I think what was going on is somebody was asking for $7 to cover a hit of heroin, and so about 7 to $10 for a hit of heroin uh, in Manchester right now. So just the drug thing is going huge. You know, you look at the numbers and you start adding it up, and it's basically close to about one in ten people are affected by uh, the drug crisis going on in the city right now. Um, I mean, we have people in the church that it's in their families. Uh, It's either that. uh, I tell people that when it comes to the whole addiction thing in our city, it's either you are an addict, your family is an addict, or someone in your family is an addict, or your neighbors are addicts. And... um, I mean, that's proven true in our neighborhood. Uh, everybody that I've met has either family that's in addiction recovery, they're in addiction recovery. Um, you know, it's, so it's, uh, it's a massive thing. And so that's why we want uh, to think about this category in terms of what does the Bible have to say about this? Because it's not, it's not us versus those people or us and those people. This is our people. These are our people. These are our family. These are our friends. These are our neighbors. This is us. And so... Uh, we want to ask the question, what does the Bible have to say about addiction? What does the Bible have to say about how we think about addiction? Um, and uh, maybe you're thinking, you know, oh, this is for those people that struggle with addiction, and I don't have an addiction. Um, I think what you're going to see as we go through this is that uh, the Bible actually, it, it evens the playing field. The Bible gets us to a point of seeing that the whole category of addiction is not just us and them. This is us under God's, uh, under God's grace. 
And so what I want us to see, what I want us to drive at seeing ultimately tonight is God has overcome our deepest addiction and the cross of Christ. And in Christ, we learn to say no to our deepest struggles. And in Christ, we get our, the deepest joy that we could possibly have, which is God himself. So with that kind of preface in mind, what I, what I want to do is I want to I look at Titus. So we're going to turn to Titus, and we're going to look at um, why we're looking at Titus for a second. And then we're going to go through and ask a series of questions. So we'll get there. But So why are we looking at Titus? Well, when you... Uh, Titus is a book written by Paul to, of all people, Titus, the pastor. <laughs> we come up with great names for books in the Bible. Who is it to? Titus. All right, that's what we'll call that book, Titus. Titus was a pastor in Crete. It was a little town, and um, uh, the people in Crete um, had this huge reputation. Uh, they had prophets that would say things about themselves, and so you see in chapter 1, uh, verse 12, uh, Paul says that the the Cretans, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. <laughs> I mean, I just think there's, there are moments in the Bible that are just funny to me, because it's like, look, here's a guy of their own people saying, look, we're all a bunch of low-down scoundrels from a saloon in the West. You know, like, whatever you think of like a saloon in the West, that's what Crete was like, and that's what their people were saying they were like, and they seemed to enjoy it. You got chapter 2, um, Verse uh, chapter two, verse six, where the uh, the Paul's exhorting older women to not be slaves uh, to much wine. So he's having to address their slavery to much wine because clearly that was a reputation that they had. Uh, so you got if you, you get down to it, you have a bunch of lazy liars who are alcoholics who like to party, um, and they like to be known about, they like to know, people to know about their parties. They like to Snapchat and send Facebook tweets and all that stuff out about their parties. Um, and here they are. Uh, God is taking these people and throwing them into a church together. Um, and he's putting Jesus' flag over them. And God is convening this uh, recovery group. So this seems kind of like a recovery group to me. A bunch of people who've got all these addiction issues that God's thrown together. And uh, God loves them. And so to them, Paul has, we're going to look at verse, chapter 2, verse 11 and 14. And so this whole rowdy group of uh, addiction recovery people, um, God says this to them. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see, when, when it comes to this group, rowdy group of people that God has convened as a, re, a recovery group, um, Paul doesn't give them anything but the gospel. Paul comes to them and he he brings to these people this glorious gospel of what God has done for them, how God has pursued them, and he wants to draw their attention to what God has done for them in Jesus. And so what we want to do is uh, I want to take this whole category of addiction recovery, this whole category of addictions, this whole category of what does it mean to recover from addictions, because um, I think this verse applies to it, but I, what I want us to do is we're going to 
we're going to kind of jump from here, and we're going to ask the question, what do people mean today by addiction recovery? How does that play out? How does that, that philosophy, how they think about it play out? How does the gospel shape how we think about addiction? And then we're going to come back and see how that all kind of plays into Titus. So I know that's kind of going to go kind of like a big kind of boomerang, you know, circle around. But I think that this whole category of addiction is massive, and I think the Bible has a lot to say to how we think about it. And so we're going to look at this category, and this is, like I said, there's going to be a bit of a different uh, uh, dance step for us tonight. So I appreciate you guys hanging in there with us. But um, we're going to we're going to start out by looking at what do people mean by the category of addiction recovery, and what they typically mean is um, by category of addiction and what does it mean, uh, what does addiction recovery mean, uh, we t- tend to think of AA. I don't know if most people think about AA or what that means, but AA is Alcoholics Anonymous. It's kind of like the mothership of all kind of the addiction recovery. Have, so you have NA, you know, Narcotics Anonymous. Um, you know, so you have other derivations of it, but that's kind of the, that, that's the, like, the main thinking of it. They have a book called The Big Book, works through the 12, st- 12 steps of the addiction re- of, of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and what we want to do is we want to kind of think, okay, what are they, what's kind of at the core of how they think about things, and what does the Bible have to say about that? Um, not because it's us versus them. It's not us against the AA, or it's not us um, trying to undermine the AA, but if they're trying to look at the world and understand how do people change, I think there's a lot of things we can learn from them and understand um, how they think through things, and I think take those things and see what the Bible has to say at a deeper level. Um, so uh, at the core of the AA is this model of um, the, this, which, which called like a, uh, a three-part disease model. Um, so you guys see here, three-part disease model of the AA. So basically what this breaks down to is there's a three-part uh, of, of what makes up an alcoholic struggle is they have the physical allergy, and so what, they're, what they mean by the physical allergy or the craving is that alcoholics, they would say, is, uh, process alcohol differently than other people. Um, the alcoholics, uh, there's a genetic disposition to, to process alcohol differently that makes it more addictive for them than the way other people would. Uh, there's the mental obsession. There's this obsession with alcohol, with, uh, so right over there, mental obsession with uh, wanting to drink alcohol normally. Uh, they want to, they have this, they recognize I have a disposition to want alcohol, but process it differently. Um, and so there's an obsession with thinking through, how can I be normal in how I drink alcohol or think, uh, think about alcohol? So uh, coming, up with, coming up with, you know, uh, plans of, I'm only going to drink with friends, I'm only going to have one drink, I'm going to have uh, a cup of water between drinks. So coming up with kind of all these strategies, this mental obsession, it becomes a, a bit of a controlling force in their lives. So you have the physical allergy where they can't process alcohol the same as other people, this mental obsession with I want to process it, I want to be like other people. Um, and then the spiritual malady up at the top there, um, what they call feeling irritable, restless, or discontent. This desire, um, at the end of the day, they can't imagine their life without alcohol. They can't imagine uh, life without this controlling substance. And I'm saying alcohol. I mean, you understand, you could, you know, process this with heroin. You know, physical allergy, I process heroin differently than other people. 
or it has meant or it has a physical hook on me in a way that doesn't have it on other people. A mental obsession. I want to be able to live like other people. I want to be I want to be rid of the pain of my life like other people. And so then there's a sp sp spiritual malady, feeling irritable, restless, and discontent is kind of the phrasing that gets used. And so you, there's actually a lot that we could say about this that's actually quite true. You know, like so you have basically uh, heart, mind, and body going on here, right? So, uh, and it's a, I mean, it's true. There are people who have genetic dispositions. Um, there are certain ethnicities that have genetic dispositions to be alcoholics more than others. Uh, so that's not, we're not trying to undermine those. These are really helpful observations, the, this sort of cycle here of uh, there are things going on in the body, there are things going on in the heart, and there's things going on in the mind that all play into what we would call an addiction, right? Um, and so I know this kind of, you know, this might seem kind of like, oh, how, this seems kind of vague and ethereal. What is actually, how does this actually play out? So what I want to do is I want to take us through um, I want to take us through a cycle, and this is going to be kind of, we're going to kind of circle around this idea of a cycle uh, for a little, a little bit. Because um, I want us to, what I want us to do is be able to take these things and apply them in a way that an alcoholic or alcoholic neighbor or our, our addicted friend um, would recognize and say, that's me. Like, they would understand, like, if we were to take this and apply it, and we were to talk through it, they would say, oh, yeah, that's me. That represents how I struggle. Um, and so we'll call it, uh, very affectionately, the insanity cycle. Um, oh, isn't that called the insanity cycle? It should have insanity cycle on there. That's my fault. Sorry. So the insanity cycle, I'm not sure if this is what uh, our friends would call it, but this is, we'll call it the, affectionately the insanity cycle. And so, um, so you start with the spiritual malady. You have irritable, restless, and discontent, uh, desiring to feel at peace, but not feeling it. Then there's a desire for relief. There's a desire to be, uh, have, be at peace. Uh, we, don't have the, we want to be rid of the spiritual malady. We want to be rid of feeling discontent. And so then the next step is we see others who seem to have like they're having a good time. They seem like they're at peace. And, uh, and then from there, we think and obsess about how, it can be, how you know, alcohol or how a, a drug or whatever could help us become normal help us to be at peace. So there's this cycle. And then, okay, so we think and obsess over it, and then we go, okay, we're going to have our first drink. We're going to have our first hit or whatever. Um, and then from there, it goes into a, down, a spree or what you might call a downward spiral. Uh, and so that, uh, from the spree and downward spiral, so you can imagine I'm feeling restless, discontent. I want to be at peace. I'm obsessed with how, how can I become at peace. This seems to be a context, this object, drinking or narcotics or whatever, seems to be a context where I can be at peace now. And so I take my first, I go into this downward spiral, this spree, and there's lots of injuries and pain. You might, saw, you might just say there's death that happens in our lives. So relationships break down, uh, maybe I get physically hurt, I lose my job, my marriage falls apart. Um, and then from there, feeling remorse and sorrow, realizing what have I done with my life. My life is falling apart. I'm going to try to take, so from there, uh, take, I'm going to take my life back. Um, let's see, what, next one here. There we go, remorse and sorrow. And then from there, okay, I'm going to make a, a better life for myself. I'm going to get myself together. This is not going to happen again. Making promises. And then from there, it just keeps going in this cycle. I'm going to make 
So you see how this is playing out. I'm going to control my life in a way where this doesn't happen again, but it's still, you haven't changed your, nothing about you has changed. Nothing about you has internally changed. Oh, there we go. It's at the end. It's giving you, it's giving you the end before we even got there. And so this is actually consistent with all of the AA model of how they would understand things. And what they would actually say in conclusion about this is that self-knowledge avails us nothing. Uh, it's this knowledge of yourself, of who you are, that recognizing this cycle, it doesn't really change anything about you. You recognize it, and it's true, but there's something about that just kind of like, well, I mean, that's true, and that's how I do things. I don't know how to break out of this, because at the heart of this, nothing about you has changed. Just you're recognizing the patterns of your life. And so what we want to do is we want to turn to this and say, okay, what is God's word how does God's word help us here? Because we don't want to speculate about this. We don't want um, observation apart uh, from revelation, from God's revelation, is just speculation. And speculation is just not going to get us anything. We want to know what God has to sell, tell us about this. We want to know how God has to share, uh, what God has to say about it. So 2 Corinthians 4.18, uh, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For, we, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So what God reveals to us in his word, this is eternal truth. And it has something to say about how we think about our lives and how we think about this cycle of sin that we're seeing. So, um, so let's ask, how does the gospel shape how we understand? Yeah, so every, every point we need God's revelation for a correct interpretation of the world around us. So how does the gospel shape how we understand this insanity cycle? So let me just say, let me just, we'll, we'll change it to be the insanity cycle, we'll, we'll change it to be the insanity cycle of sin, we'll start with the spiritual malady. See, at the heart of what spiritual malady, the reason that we feel restless, discontent, and irritable is at the heart of everything is this reality of sin in our lives. Romans 5, uh, 5.12, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's at the heart of the Christian faith is this reality that Every person is broken, and every person is in need of God's grace. Every person is shattered in their inner being at their, at their core identity because of sin, because we have sinned and disobeyed God. We have rejected God. And in a way, sin, um, sin is the marring of shalom, or sin is the marring of peace. This world, this world that God created to be at peace with himself, to be at peace with him, sin is the marring of that. It's this breaking of it. So that's why we feel the spiritual malady. Spiritual malady is this desire to be uh, at, uh, is a desire for peace with God that we cannot have on our own. So we, we, we kind of understand the spiritual malady as an insanity cycle of sin. It's not just kind of like the spiritual malady that just kind of exists however we want to understand it. It's a sin issue. So then our desire for relief a desire for relief, where we know, Romans uh, 8.22, for we know that the whole world has been, uh, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We all feel a deep desire for peace and goodness in the world. We yearn for goodness. We yearn for the world to be made right. But it's broken in a way that we cannot have apart from God's grace. So there's, there's a universal, everybody experiences the desire for, uh, for peace. So you see, there, there's a sense in which this, we're beginning to understand that this insanity cycle of sin, what we're talking about, we're taking our friends, you know, the AA model, and we're applying it to our lives, 
And there's a way in which you can understand that spiritual malady of everybody feels uh, irritable, restless, and discontent. Like, that's not unique to people who are addicts, you know, to uh, alcohol or any other drug. It's not, that's not a unique experience. And it's not a unique experience to desire relief. Everybody desires relief. Everybody longs for it to be at peace and to enjoy the good world, way in which the world was created. So then, let's go look at, uh, we had that as um, seeing others or desiring to have a good time. And I think biblically, let's just call that temptation. The desire to be at peace, the desire to have things made right, trying to find a source to make things right. I think we just biblically call that temptation. James 1, 13 through 16, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. For each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So that lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. We long for change and peace, and we want to see, when we see that others have it, but the reality is that the temp, the, our desires and yearning for relief uh, become from the temptations that are in our own hearts. It's at our heart level that sin is coming out. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then Jesus in Mark 7, and he said, Jesus, this is Jesus saying, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. See, the heart is the root of where all of these, the desire for relief, this irritable and discontent, the desire for temptations to uh, relieve the pain, the action, that they all spring from the heart. So it's not, we're not just kind of this passive animal that, uh, that happened to become sinners or addicted. It's actually out of the heart that all these things spring forth. It's at a heart level that we desperately need God's help. And it's out of the heart level that we are rejecting God. Um, it's like, uh, if, you were to, if you were to imagine, like you have this underground river, and you drop, you drill a well down into it. When you're starting to pull the water out, uh, you're not revealing anything that wasn't there already. And that's the way our actions are. Our actions are like this well that's pulling things out of our heart. That those things were already there anyways. Um, we we were wanting uh, to reject God in our own hearts, and it's these actions that just kind of show how we're just going to manifest that rejection of God. So it might be you know, lying about our taxes. It might be um, committing adultery. It might be um, anxiety. It might be getting drunk. It might be uh, shooting up. It might be um, a number of things. They, Jesus is indiscriminate when he's talking about all these addictions. Like, these are all the things that come out of the heart because it's the heart that needs, uh, that is broken. And it is actually at the heart level. Uh, so the heart level is, is active. We, we are yearning we have this yearning to be at peace. We have this desire to be at peace. Um, and we are looking to all these temptations uh, to free us and to save us. And this is not just a battle of just kind of like 
our hearts just kind of like doing bad things. We are actually being tempted. There are things being offered to us. There are things that are being brought to us that, uh, that are enticing us to sin. So it's not just our internal desire to, be, to sin, but there are, there are demonic activities, there's demonic force that's coming to us to lead us into sin. And effectively, Satan baits our hook. You know, so whatever it is, it's, um, might, it might be alcohol, but it might be, um, it might be a shopping spree. It might be uh, Netflix binge-watching. It might be a to-do list that we put our hope in rather than trusting in God. It might, it might be a lot of good and great things, or it might be bad things. It, it, it's indiscriminate. The, those, those are the things that Satan baits our hook with. So what is it that, for you? What is, it, what is it that Satan is baiting your hook with? What is, it that you don't turn, what is it that you turn to when you're not turning to Jesus for peace and hope? What is it that's causing you um, to find help, try to find temporary help when you're not looking to God? You know, so Netflix can be just as destructive as making yourself throw up in the bathroom, right? Shop, a shopping spree can just be as dangerous as a, as a drinking spree. Just one more glance at that website uh, can be just as destructive as cutting your wrist. It's not, the sin is not, like, it's not discriminate, and it's not, like, bland in your face. It's, it's a temptation because it's not obvious. It's a temptation because it's deceitful. And that's why the, the, the command is, do not be deceived. The heart is deceitful. The heart, you cannot trust what's going on in your own heart. And so that's, at the heart of this, the temptation for yearning and peace is a brokenness deep within us that has to be dealt with at the heart level. It's not just kind of like our circumstances have to change or we have to come up with a different plan. At the heart level, we have to be changed. So if we were to follow this through, we're thinking and obsessed with what needs to ha- what, what we can find to find peace in our lives. Um, and the, with the temptation comes a lie. So Romans one twenty five. Because they exchange the truth about God, that God loves them and cares about them, they change the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Instead of turning to God, who has all the power and control, the heart desires to turn to a bottle for more help, anger to solve the problem. These are all different ways of trying to manage the problem of our sin. So it's, you know, Adam and Eve, they sin against God, they reject him, and they suddenly realize, oh, we're naked, we need to cover up. And so they get these fig leaves to try to present themselves as being righteous before God, as being okay. You know, these fig leaves of our own sin, these fig leaves of our own attention, of our own, uh, you know, the, how we, the Netflix binge watching, or the, the list that we put our hope in, or the alcohol, or the, the throwing up, all these things, they feel good for a moment. They give us temporary relief, but they don't solve the inner problem of our own hearts. Because at the, at the deepest level, what's going on is a heart, is a, is a worship issue. Though addiction may have mental and physical aspects, its priority, um, it's primarily a worship disorder. At, at, the, at the heart level, you see what's going on here? The heart is is yearning for all these other things because at the heart level, there's a worship disorder. There's a worship problem in our heart. Um, you know, I know this is kind of sounding like 
And how does this, this seems great, it seems kind of like you got all these Bible verses up here, this seems like it's going well. Uh, but how does this play out? Like, what's the, like, what does this mean? Like, I mean, you can see that I'm trying to make the case that at the heart level, we are all addicted to something. We are addicts at our heart level to sin. And uh, that looks different for other people. It looks like alcohol for some, some of our neighbors or some of us. Uh, but for others, it might be a, a yearning for, for control um, that just, it, it just lights you up when you don't have control. So, like, for example, so I'll, uh, I'll put myself on the seat here, and we'll, we'll, use, we'll use Jacob as an example here. So, um, this, happen, this, this might happen, uh, that I want, I want things to be in order and control around the house, because um, I can't handle it when things are total in total chaos. And so, uh, let's say that things aren't cleaned up, or things aren't put away, or things uh, are, I imagine it's hard for you to imagine this, the boys break something, or destroy the house in some way, and my yearning and I, my idolatry, you might call it, my love for order and cleanliness in the house, I, I will defend that. I will do whatever it takes to get that. And so to get the order and cleanliness and whatever in the house that I, I want, I get angry. The, the, temp, the temptation is, okay, here's the desire. I want order in, I want order in the house. The temptation is, it's not happening, I, uh, and I need to make it happen. I can make this happen on my own. The temptation is, if I just raise my voice a little bit, this will get, this will get solved. And so then, the obsession is, there's other people who are clean and had things in order, and I need to get that. I must have cleanliness and order in the house. And so, what do I do? It's not the action, might not be a drink. <laughs> Maybe for some people it is to get drunk. Uh, for me, it might be raise my voice and get angry and yell. I'll get it however I want. I'm going to get this. And you see what's happened in that is, it's not that I don't love my family, or I don't love Michelle, or I don't love the boys, but that at that moment, I am loving order and cleanliness more than I'm loving them. It's a disorder, it's a disorder of worship in the heart. It's a disorder of how I want things to happen. Because what God has said is that God has given us each other to love each other and to, and to serve each other, and at that moment, I'm deciding to serve me. I want my version of the world to be preeminent. I want my version of the world to rule in this house. And I'm going to lay everybody at the altar of that desire. I'm going to lay them down, and I'm going to sacrifice them so that I get what I want. So is that, is that example kind of put some meat on the bones here, guys? Is that, this is not just kind of like, oh, look, here's how you get to that first bottle and drink it. No, this is how the heart works. Like, this is... At the heart level, this is how sin works in our hearts. So we, you see, at the, at the end of the day, it's, it's not that we don't love each other or that we don't love our neighbors, but that we love, at that moment, we love whatever it is that our object of desire, whether it's alcohol or order or control or our image or how we, whatever. We love those things more than we love God and we love the people around us. And ultimately, we form communities around this, right? We form communities around our love. You know, how do you know if a kid's getting into drugs? You look at his friends. You know, how do you know if a guy's um, becoming obsessive with making money? You look at the people that he hangs out with. Yeah, but it's the same thing with when our order, our desires for, are reordered around God. 
when we are saved and we want more of Jesus, we start getting around more people who love and want more of Jesus. That's what we're doing here, right? We want more of Jesus. We want to know and love Jesus more. That's what we desire. That's what we want to bring agreement around. We want to bring unity around this love for Jesus. You know, there's been a few of us that started talking about using the phrase, um, at King's Cross Church, we are loving Jesus together. That's what we're trying to do. That, I mean, at the heart of who we are at the church, that's what we are about. We are loving Jesus together because we want more of Jesus. We want him. We have to have him. We desire to have him. And that's the reordering. That's the right ordering of the heart in worship. So at the heart level, the heart is being changed to want more of Jesus. And so that's the redemptive community of God in the church is to change at the heart level our desire for more of Jesus. And so that's what we're doing here. We're reordering. Even right now, I know that this is a bit of a different, maybe more tedious sermon than usual. But right now, we are reordering the heart around our love and desire for more of Jesus. So, all right, let's follow this through a little bit more. So just the action, you have the desire, um, you have the temptation, you have the thinking and obsession, and then you have the act of, uh, act, act of sin and trying to fix the, pro- the, the spiritual problem with the created thing, whether that's food or drink, um, sex, to-do lists, alcohol. Um, and let's look at Romans, uh, Romans 1, 24, verse, tw- verse 24, 26, and 28. Romans 1.24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their, lust of their hearts to impurity, to, this, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So you see actually here, there's actually, he's circling through these three aspects of mental, physical, and spiritual maladies mental, physical, and spiritual problems, mental, physical, spiritual brokenness. And so in some sense, alcohol is a disease. Um, It is a disease that there is a physical aspect to spiritual things. There's always a spiritual brokenness. And so, yes, we do things with our bodies. We do things with, we think things with our minds. We desire things with our hearts, all because at the heart of it, we are broken in need of God's redemption in our hearts. So it isn't just an alcohol or heroin thing. Uh, I hope you're seeing through this that this is this is every like this is everything like this encompasses every desire that we have in our hearts. Like this this process of thinking through sin is not just an alcoholics thing. It's not just an AA thing. Um, and there because there are religious and irreligious versions of addiction. There's a there's religious. You can be committed to being a good person. I'm going to make God love me, and so the way I'm going to make God love me because I don't feel at relief in my heart is the way, the way you get God to love you is by going to church every Sunday. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to church every Sunday so that God loves me. And then when God, I know that I've gone to church enough to get God to love me, I'll feel at peace. You can see how this plays out, right? But you also think about, I mean, at the core of AA, I mean, it's a commitment. I mean, it is a commitment to a program. It's a commitment to a process that, get, that sticks you in a, in a lifelong commitment to this process that, I mean, that, frankly, AA is an incredibly religious experience. I mean, you're committed to a process for the rest of your life. You're working through these 12 steps to appease God, and you're always in that cycle of, 12, of the 12 steps process. Now, I, frankly, I just want to make a little caveat here. I, I will, I'm interested in com- changing why people are a part of AA. I'm not telling people to leave AA entirely. 
I'm actually wanting to change their reasons for being a part of AA. I want them to not go to AA for their spiritual identity in life. I want them to go there because they see people who need Jesus, and they want to walk life together with those people. So I hope you hear my comments about AA are not to say AA has to be ejected, and if you're a Christian, you can't be a part of AA. I think if you are an AA and you become a Christian, you should stick in because you should, you, that's a, a, a ripe mission field for people who need Jesus. But God's going to frustrate all of our attempts to find satisfaction in life apart from him. Um, and the, the reality is that it's this whole thing, this whole cycle, like you just heard me do, you can do this with bad things like you know, pornography. You could do this with alcohol. You could do this with uh, you know, in, you know, your self-image or self-worth. But you could also do it with good things. I, I want to be a good husband, and you work through this whole thing. So at the heart level, this is the, the, the heart's desire to rebel against God is massive. Okay, I feel like I'm being a bit tedious. Are you guys, we're, we're good? Is everybody sticking with me? Okay. So you got the spree, you got the spree, and then from that, you, just have, you, you reap all forms of death in your life. I mean, you, you got deaths of various kinds, like we were saying before. Um, you see, you know, broken marriages, or the reality is you have this internal death of like, I, I can't find peace in the world without my, uh, you know, without my Snapchat account, or I can't, find, I can't find internal peace until somebody likes my Facebook status. I mean, God forbid. I, I will confess, I have felt at disease. I have, I have felt uh, devalued by other people by not having people like my Facebook statuses. <laughs> God help me. But on a more serious note, I mean, you do have uh, disease and death of all different kinds. So that just, that just, that's the result of our hearts going after the creation in our own thinking um, rather than to God. But in a biblical framework, that, uh, those things lead to remorse or sorrow. So Romans 8, 20 through 21, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see, in Jesus, and only in Jesus, is our remorse for sin and our remorse for the brokenness in our lives filled with a hope that actually has a promised solution to what we're facing. And that's because God has broken into our lives, not because of anything that we deserve, but because of who he is, and reveal Jesus to us. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shone into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. At the heart of conversion, at the heart of looking to Jesus, at the heart of seeing who God has revealed himself to be in Jesus is an inbreaking of an entirely new creative act of God. You are no longer looking to the created world that has fallen and broken, but you are looking to the God who redeems and gives grace for all of our hurts, all of our brokenness, all of our sin. And it is this God that makes the remorse and sorrow that we feel for sin begin to bear fruit for righteousness, bear fruit for God. Because it is through the Spirit that we are born again, and it is by the Spirit that God works in our hearts to love and obey Him. So Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you 
and cause you to walk on my statutes and carefully to obey my rules. You see, when we turn to Christ and we look to Christ and we trust in Christ, the Spirit is given to us and we have a new heart that longs to obey God, that yearns to obey God, that loves to obey God, and is that Spirit working in us. Is the Holy Spirit that we talked about last week. It's that Holy Spirit working in us that helps us to, to obey God, that trains us to obey God, trains us to say no to the corruptions of our souls. And so then, if 2 Corinthians 7, uh, verse 10, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, to the sor- but the sorrow of the world produces death. So you see how in this cycle... You have God coming in by His grace to save us and implant the Holy Spirit in us. So that this cycle of sin, this insanity cycle of sin is broken by the grace of God so that we can begin to obey and love God more. Now, here's the thing. This sort of chart, this can give you the impression that it's only at this point that God's grace comes into your life. That is not, that if we had time here, we had like another hour, we could go through this. But the grace of God through the, through the Spirit, it comes in and changes our desire for relief apart from God. It breaks in and changes that desire for relief apart from God. But when there's temptation, God gives us a, a way out of temptation. When, the, when we're thinking and obsessed about, oh, I just want, new, I want something, I want this thing that will give me relief, God's Spirit helps us here. So at each point in this process, like this isn't like... like I just I confess, this is not in Scripture, but I'm just saying, this, is, this follows a biblical pattern, I think. And, a, and the great hope of Scripture is, uh, is that at every point, God's promising grace for every way in which we experience temptation and experience the brokenness of our sin in this life so that we can have hope, so, so that we can be changed. So is that, is that making sense? Is everybody, we're all good? You can shake no, if that's okay. We can... 36, uh, 26 through 27. By the way, if you guys, I can give you my, my sermon notes on this if you want. I can just send you the PDF so you have all this. Is that good? <laughs> Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. Um, and so I think that at the end of the day, what we're looking at here in terms of how do we, how, what's the common ground between us and our neighbors who are um, addicts? Is, you see, at the, at the end of the day, the, the hope for change is just a biblical view of how people change. We're all addicts, because at the heart of it is, is, is sin, is the brokenness that's within us. And sin is how, sin comes out in addictions to Netflix and heroin, you know? Like, it, it's, the, this cycle, this process, just reflects a biblical pattern of change that the gospel brings to us. So, we just offer a few observations, and we're going to jump back to Titus, okay? Is everybody good with that? All right, we're a church plant, guys, you know, so what do we know? <laughs> There's a few observations. AA and their model has incredibly insightful things to say about human nature and how we function. I just want to say that they have incredibly insightful things. You don't have to be a Christian to have insightful observations about the human condition. But those observations will only be true and helpful to the changing of a human soul with the gospel in hand. Second thing, programs don't heal people. As much as I am so grateful for the 12 steps, 12 steps will not heal people. Only Jesus will heal people. Programs don't heal people. Jesus heals people. People don't desire to be changed. They are treated like a project. 
Jesus doesn't treat people like a project. People are not a project to be pushed through with 12 steps. They are people to be changed, and they are people that Jesus intimately loves personally. Another thing to say about this is sobriety is a byproduct. You see, this whole process is not about getting your marriage fixed. It's not about um, getting your priorities right in line. It, or uh, It's not about... Um, There's a number of, number of things you could desire in a process like this, but it, marriage is being healed, uh, binge drinking stopping, uh, getting your life back on track. Those are all byproducts. Those are not the aim of what, what this process is aiming at because at the heart of this is a desire for God himself, a desire to, be, to know God and to be known by God and to live in a relationship with God. Um, Another thing to note here is that uh, this is a, a ministry of movement, you might say. As a mini- ministry of movement is that people are in a process of change to become more like Jesus increasingly through this life, not perfectly, um, and then at glorification become totally like him. A, pro- a, a program, um, effectively, it, you are strapped in that program and you're in those 12 steps forever, always doing that, always helping people do that, and you're staying with that identifier for the rest of your life. That does not sound like freedom to me. Being in a process that you're always in these 12 steps, always circling through them, always processing through them, that doesn't sound like freedom. But the ministry of the gospel frees people to grow, to be more like Jesus, grow to use discipleship processes that might have 12 steps in them, but the church and the growth of life together in the church Loving Jesus together in the church, lifelong commitment in the local church is God's process of change for people. Um, and then the final, the final thing, oh, I meant to take off the false gospel, but that's fine. Um, the uh, abstinence is not the way to God. Stopping your binge Netflix as much as stopping your binge drinking is not the way to God. That's why alcohol and Netflix are not inherently bad. <laughs> so we're not going to tell people to not drink beer. We're not going to tell people to not watch Netflix. We're not going to, you know, that's not what we're going after. Abstinence from those things is not the, not the hope here. The, the, the thing that we are wanting, the only way of change is Jesus himself. You're no closer to God sober than you are drunk. You are more closer to God in Jesus. You are closest to God in Jesus. You are in God in Jesus. So we are now on that, on that comment about in Jesus, it is all about getting to Jesus and for Jesus. We're going to jump back to Titus. Is that okay, guys? I just feel like I have to keep asking your permission because this is a bit of a different message. So we're just going to see, we're just going to, we're going to see four quick things real quick here in Titus that I think you will with kind of what, everything we just went over, what kind of, I think will, uh, will ring truer to, to you. So, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from the all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
So the first thing we see here is a pursuing God in verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This God is himself a God who pursues people. He brings salvation. He's not waiting for you to figure out who God is on your own terms. He's not waiting for you to figure out when you're going to decide to find God or how you're going to define him. God himself is the one who has appeared. He has pursued us. People who have rejected him, people who have chosen objects of this world, the desires of our heart, the people around us, the created things, we have chosen those things over God over and over, time and time again, and it is us that God has pursued. It is us that God has sought. God has appeared in Jesus Christ, bringing his grace because he is a gracious God. He loves to save people who reject him. He loves to save the rebel. And he is not just a showing up, showing off his coat. He is bringing salvation. He is bringing us a salvation that is actually a salvation. It changes us. It changes. It saves us out of the darkness of our lives. It saves us out of the addictions of our hearts. It saves us out of the anxieties and fears and obsessions that we have. It saves us from that feeling restless and discontent. And gives us God himself. He has appeared, and it is for everybody. There is no distinction in God's kingdom of addictions. There are not addictions that are more bad than others. All addictions are the same addictions to sin. They're all the manifestations of sin. And God has brought salvation to all people who have all addictions. In the church, there will be people who have all types of pasts. It will be an addiction to church. It will be an addiction to being a pastor. It will be an addiction to alcohol. It is the salvation that God has brought to all people so that they would be satisfied with Jesus Christ himself. Because God is himself a pursuing God. He is on the move. He loves to pursue us. He loves to use us to pursue our neighbors. This is a pursuing God. So the second thing we see, a training grace in verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The grace of God, you see, everything that we just talked about, this, this cycle, this insanity cycle of sin, that's a training in, in righteousness. It's, it's, a, it's God's grace training us. It's a training of God's grace to love and know him more, to desire to obey Jesus. It's a, and it takes time, guys. I mean, it's just, the reality is, that it, I, I, I'm so grateful that Paul says that it's a, a training to renounce us. It's not um, expecting us. It's not demanding. It's training. It's this coming alongside and showing us day after day, what does it mean to say no to our hearts? What does it mean to make much of Jesus? What does it mean to obey and love him? What does it mean to continually grow to be more like him? What does it mean to be patient with each other? What does it mean to trust him when it seems like all the darkness is around you? What does it mean to trust him when it seems like nothing's changing? It's a training. It's a, it's a compassionate, it's a, it's a tender grace that comes alongside us. And I think, guys, I think one thing that I would call us to on this, an application of this, is that it means that we must, I think, I think we must desire to continually grow in being compassionate with people. It means that just as God has been patient with us and training us in grace, training us to trust him, training us in being patient and compassionate with us, just as God has been compassionate with us, 
The same grace means that we must be compassionate with all the different types of people around us. People who come from addiction backgrounds. People who are right now in addictions. People who frustrate us with whatever it is their quirks are in the church. People who, however you are feeling frustrated with the other people around you, the people in your family, the, your friends, the people in this church, the people in the city, I think a training grace means that we must be compassionate towards the people around us. And that God gives us the grace to do that. So another thing we see here, a third thing, a delayed hope. So verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Maybe this is a bit of an odd point to make about addictions, but the reality is that addictions are our desire for immediate relief on our terms. Whatever that is, whether that's, you know, Netflix has been the punching bag tonight, whether it's Netflix, whether it's alcohol, whether it's pornography, whether it's uh, our friendships, whether it's our text messages, whether it's whatever it is, our addictions reveal our desire to have immediate gratification on our own terms. And what the gospel does is it reorients our worship, the worship of our souls, so that we can wait. We can wait. We can say no. We can wait for God to provide help. We can wait for God to provide grace. We can wait on God himself to help us. And it's not just kind of like a day-to-day thing. There is an ultimate, great, glorious hope that we are waiting for. The revelation of Jesus Christ at the end of the day. The revelation of Jesus Christ in all of his glory for us. The revelation of Jesus Christ when he changes all things in the, in the twinkle of an eye, when he changes everything like that, and everything changes, that's what we're waiting for. When, yes, even our genetic dispositions for one sin or another, waiting for when God takes care of even those things that we can't control, those things that are difficult, those things that just don't seem, ever seem to go away. Waiting for when God will provide grace to change those things because we're going to see Jesus face to face. And then the last thing we see here is an empowering gospel in verse 14. Waiting for our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see, at the heart of this, Paul is giving them the gospel as the hope of help and hope for addiction. At the heart of this is the God-man, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh, who lived among us, who saw every form of addiction that could have possibly ever happened, every form of sinner, every form of, of, of marring of the, of the people of God, of the image of God, marring of humanity, seeing it all. Jesus lived among it all because he pursued us. He longed for us to know God. He longed for God's glory to be vindicated. He longed for us to know God, to be changed, to be like Him. So He took on flesh and took on our sin on the cross. He took on the wrath of God that we deserved. At the heart of this is the Gospel. All these things, this insanity cycle of sin, that whole thing deserves the wrath of God. It deserves the punishment of God for all the ways that we have rejected God. So you see, when you see that cycle of sin, you see all the ways that we've rejected God. It's not just kind of like, oops, I stumbled into some sin today. No, 
It is this whole reality out of the heart that we reject God and we will give Him the fist to the end of our days. But God in His mercy has sent Jesus Christ to save us, to break that bondage to sin by the death of Jesus Christ and rose in victoriously over the grave so that when we look to Him, we experience this new life in God. We experience new life in Jesus. We have received the Holy Spirit and we can know Him and we can walk through the paths of repentance and faith. We can walk through repentance and faith day by day to know Jesus more. Become more like Him because He saved us to be like Him. Guys, thanks for sticking in this with me. I know this has been a bit longer than usual. But God has overcome our deepest addiction in the cross of Christ. And by trusting in Christ, we learn to say no to our deepest struggles and gain the deepest joy. We gain God Himself in Jesus Christ. Can we pray for us? Father, we thank You for Your patience and Your grace to us. We thank You for Your kindness to us in Jesus Christ. And God, we ask that you would give us more faith and more grace to know you, to enjoy your goodness to us in Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that we would be a means of your grace to our friends who are struggling in the bondage of addiction tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.